Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Before YouTube, John C. Riley's group of friends would gather at the director Paul Thomas Anderson's house for a thing they called Twisted Video Night. And everyone would bring in videotapes that they'd found from just really weird commercials or random samplings of cable access shows. And then it seemed like the whole world became Twisted Video World, like when YouTube hit. So anyway, one time, Jonah Hill showed John C. Riley a clip from QVC. The best ones are when people really brag before they do anything. And this guy was like bragging about the samurai sword that he was selling on QVC and how it was indestructible and it was made by Japanese masters of, you know, seven layers of steel. And then he hits it on the table as hard as he can. And then the sword immediately breaks in half and the end of it sticks him right in the chest. It doesn't go very deep into his chest, but he, he stops and he's like, oh, okay, it got me, it got me. And then he starts talking to someone off camera named Odette. Odette, all right, Odette, it got me, just the tip. Just the tip got me, Odette. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk with actor John C. Riley, a guy with tremendous range, more than almost anyone. He's been hilarious in movies like Talladega Nights and Step Brothers. He's played dramatic roles with serious directors, too, guys like Paul Thomas Anderson and Martin Scorsese. And he's never been anything less than honest on screen. And I think that's the artist's job, to show us the parts of ourselves that we're embarrassed to admit are true about ourselves. Riley stars in the new movie The Lobster and also in a very strange show called Check It Out with Dr. Steve Rule that I particularly love. Why does a movie star have a faux cable access show that runs in the middle of the night on the Cartoon Network? He'll explain. Then later I'll talk to Shamir. He's known for his dance music, though he used to sing country songs and he played in a punk band. We'll talk about what it was like to grow up in the Las Vegas suburbs and why his new record sounds the way that it does. I kind of decided to make my music more danceable and lighthearted to kind of like take away from the heaviness of the lyrics. Because, I mean, you know, why not? Like, why does your music also have to be heavy if your lyrics are? And I'll recommend a revenge movie that's really about how we each struggle with our own pasts. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. John C. Riley is one of the most accomplished screen actors of our time. He's worked with directors like Martin Scorsese, Paul Thomas Anderson, Terrence Malick, and Robert Altman. He was nominated for an Oscar for his performance in Chicago. And the same appeal that makes him a dramatic star has made him a comedy star, too. In movies like Step Brothers and Talladega Nights, but also in a strange little TV show called Check It Out with Dr. Steve Brule. Brule originated on the sketch series Tim and Eric, Awesome Show, Great Job, and has graduated to its own series on Adult Swim, which ran for three seasons. It's kind of hard to describe, but imagine the world's dopiest local TV news expert set loose on the world. Or instead of imagining, just listen to this. In this scene, Dr. Brule and a chef introduce sushi to his audience, starting with the ingredients fish, ginger, and wasabi in big bowls. Konnichiwa. Konnichiwa. 
I brought a real sushi lady in to make real sushi sandwiches for us. Hi. Sushi Hi. 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 She's friendly lady. What do we have here? The building blocks of sushi. Sushi meat, peaches, and guacamole. Wasabi. What's up? Wasabi. It's not that hard to let other people from other countries talk to you. If you have peaches and it's just all peaches and cream all the time, it'd just be a dessert, you dungle. I love guacamole, it's my favorite. What's up? <coughs> oh, it's really hot guacamole. Oh. <coughs> <coughs> Holy guacamole, yeah! Check it out! I spoke to John C. Riley in 2014. John C. Riley, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on Bullseye. Thank you. It's good to be here. I, I want to talk about your background a little bit and some of your other roles and so on and so forth. But I want to talk first about Steve Brule. And the question that I have for you about him is this. You are uh, an accomplished movie actor in both dramatic and comic roles and an Oscar nominee. So why do you do a really weird television show on Adult Swim. I started working with Tim and Eric many years ago when I first came in. I met them at someone's birthday party, this comedian Ron Lynch, who's also brilliant. And we struck up a friendship, and they were making a, movie, uh, they were making a show at the time called Tom Goes to the Mayor. And they asked me to come in and do a voice. They had this whole suite of offices, all these people working for them, and they had like a sound little sound booth similar to the one we're sitting in now <laughs> and uh, like a green screen. And they could pretty much do whatever they wanted. There was no one like it seemed to be no one in charge other than them. There were no <laughs> like executive type people making sure that everything was OK or appropriate. And then I later – so we did that. It was just – we just did whatever we wanted to do. It was like outrageously liberating and fun. And then I asked them, like, where where are the people that pay for this? How did you guys just, like, <laughs> stumble into L.A. and get yourself set up with offices and a green screen and, like, no supervision? Like, this is incredible. They said, well, you know, Adult Swim is in Atlanta, so all the executives stay there in Atlanta. And we kind of make the stuff and send it to them. And if they like it, then, then it's good. Uh, but we almost received no notes, which I was – I just thought, like, that's a dream situation. Like, you know, you'd have to ask Dr. Steve why he chose to focus on the things he focuses on on the show. But as an executive producer of Check It Out and a friend and collaborator with Tim and Eric, it's the total liberating freedom and anarchy and joyful mayhem that happens when you work with those guys. When you saw their work, when you saw Tom Goes to the Mayor, you saw Tim and Eric, awesome show, great job. What appealed to you about those shows and their very, very specific aesthetic? Uh, I like how unsentimental their work is. Tim, Both Tim and Eric have really kind of exacting, almost cruel honesty about what they do. Coupled with – they have a real wonderful sense of the absurd. Um, actually, one of the chief things I really like about what, what they do and how they do it is it's not snarky. For better or worse, when I do comedy or dramatic stuff, I come from a place of sincerity, you know? And I think Tim and Eric also come from that same place. 
Their work is like, um, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's sort of like, it's sketch comedy set in a world where everything is aesthetically a little grotesque, but but I mean in the sense that it is looks like an everything looks like an industrial film from the '80s that you bought at the thrift <laughs> store on VHS, uh, including your show. And uh, many of the actors are not actors at all; they're just people saying things. Yeah, it goes back to that honesty thing. They they'd rather have. Some weird person from like sea level extras casting just really react and make a mistake honestly on camera than they would have some kind of smart ass know it all comedian to come in and sort of fashion a character, you know, like I don't know, I think that's really when I first saw their work, even on Tom Goes to the Mayor, I thought this is like when I discovered Monty Python when I was a kid. Like most of the people who were thinking in a more conventional way at the time thought it was just like a waste of time to watch Monty Python because it doesn't make any sense. Like, and it, they were like, the less they got the joke, the angrier they were. And if you look at comments online about Tim and Eric stuff, the angriest people are the ones that don't get the joke. And there's nothing you can do to explain to them why it's funny. It's like, Anyway, I think I think in 10 or 20 years, people will look back on Awesome Show and specifically on Tim and Eric and the stuff they do and realize, wow, those guys were about 10 years ahead of everyone else. And it's going to – I mean, they already have a cult following, but I think it's going to – the world's going to catch up in the same way that they did with Monty Python. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm speaking with the actor John C. Riley. He currently stars in the film The Lobster. Let's hear some more of uh, Dr. Steve Brule on his show, Check It Out. My guest is John C. Riley. In this in this segment, as I said, Dr. Brule, who started out as a sort of, um, you know, local TV expert, like a greengrocer or a doctor giving tips, um, has gone out into the world. And in this case, he's going down to what he calls the marinara, which is the marina. And he's going to talk about boats. So I walked on a plank with a captain of a boat named of Gary, who knew a little bit about broats, not as much as me because I have five of broats. How come you don't have a captain's hat? This is a captain's hat. Well, well that's what this is what real captains wear. What's the most important thing to know for going on a broat? The most important thing is the safety. Nope. Most important no thing is uh, stay in the boats. I think that goes along with the safety issue. I know. I have fibros. Then you should know exactly what we're talking about. I do. All right, it's enough of this jibber-jabbering. Let's, uh, let's cast off onto the high seas with Captain Gary. Sounds good. Good for me, too. He's very confident. <laughs> he is. Steve's an expert on a lot of things, and he <laughs> likes to share his knowledge with the viewers. <laughs> he really... I mean, let's go back to that sincerity thing. Like, see, Brule is a very sincere person. He's trying to help the audience. He's doing his best. It's just that the show is made by him and his friend Denny, and that's it. They don't have any other help, and they're almost making it behind Channel 5's back. So everything they do, they, they're trying their very best. I, there's, we, have one, we have one clip of, of Dr. Brule from Tim and Eric Awesome Show, Great Job. This is the early – he's gotten progressively more – I don't know what you would call it, maybe disturbed? 
Well, I think we're all products of our experiences and our traumas, and sometimes there's a degrading quality that happens. You know, I mean, a degradation in your mental mental state. integrity. Let's say this is a, if you experience some of the things that Steve has experienced over and over for the viewers. This is an early. This is an early segment where it's just it's just a tip. Is Brule's rules. It's Brule's Rules with Channel 5's Dr. Steve Brule. I'm Dr. Steve Brule with another Brule rule for you. If you're raking the leaves and it gets all over your driveway, just hose it off, dummy. For your health. Yeah, some of the things are pretty obvious that he points out, but <laughs> in his mind, there are people who don't know these things. They need to be told. <laughs> yeah, the that's how the character kind of started was... Uh, or well, how Steve became popular as a television personality was as being a featured guest on the Married News broadcast with Jan and Wayne Schuyler on Channel 5 in the awesome show. Actually, the Married News couple started out on Tom Goes to the Mayor. Yeah, so uh, yeah, they go way back in the Tim and Eric canon. You live, you've lived in California for a while. Did you ever watch the local public television personality, Hugh Hauser? Yeah, well, Hugh Hauser was... And is a big part of the inspiration for the show, Check It Out with Steve Brule. That means that it was really the format of the show is is largely based on Hugh Harbor. Hugh Hauser. Sorry, I'm Huel, catching Brule disease. I'm starting to Huel was a guy who mispronounce everything. was beloved in California, especially Southern California, for his show where he would go to – Yeah, Golden California. Yeah, local local landmarks and also less than landmark local places and marvel, essentially marvel at them on camera. And he was such a compelling, sincere, Very open-hearted, guy, charismatic yeah. man yeah. Um, that he would sell you on anything, a goat – yeah, from that's a goat to mouth. Castle. Always be eating something and say, "That's for your mouth." <laughs> He's just a fascinating guy. He passed away recently, which was, you know, I was very sad when when he suddenly was dead. I did not see that coming. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, you find yourself like you, at first you start watching, like, what is he doing in Twenty Nine Palms at like the the gas station that sells donuts, like. Is he really going to spend 20 minutes at this gas station? And then all of a sudden you find yourself tuning in again and watching the whole episode. And There's something about how open-hearted he is. And I think that's something that Steve Brule has in common with him. Yeah. And it's also A one of the things that you're – genuine enthusiasm for, for what he's interested in. And it's also something that, that a lot of the characters that you're cast in – have in common that kind of op- that kind of open heartedness, which sometimes sometimes means you know pain as well yeah. as you know Huel Huel never you know looked uncomfortable on camera, but a, a lot of your characters uh, are hurt because of um yeah. So I often play dreamers and people that are sincerely really believe in something sometimes to dramatic effect, and yeah, sometimes when they believe in something absurd or ridiculous to comedic effect but that really goes back to the way i work you know i don't really know how to i've never been a fan of people who in any kind of art look down at their subjects or put themselves as the artist somewhere above their characters or their paintings or their songs or whatever it is i just don't believe that i don't know i don't know how to work like that i only know how to really connect with the material 
and feel like this person I'm playing is my equal or 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 they're even more interesting than me um and I think in order to really commit to something, you have to sincerely love it. I think that's the key to really compelling work is full commitment. I want to play a scene uh, from Magnolia from 1999, the Paul Thomas Anderson movie. And in this movie, you played a police officer who, you know, I think I, I think it's this is a really lovely scene because it shows the way that the kind of combination of ambition and optimism and haplessness and failure can be both very moving comedically and, you know, uh, dramatically. And so in this scene, your character is on a date with a woman that he met earlier that day. He doesn't yet know that she's addicted to cocaine. Um, and, uh, Yeah, let's take a listen. I'm really nervous that you're going to hate me soon. You're going to find stuff out about me and you're going to hate me. No, like what? What do you mean? You have so much, so many good things, and you seem so together. (coughs) You're a police officer and you seem so straight and put together without any problems. I lost my gun today. What? I lost my gun today when I left you and I'm the laughing stock of a lot of people. I wanted to tell you. I wanted you to know. And it's on my mind. And it makes me look like a fool. I feel like a fool. And you asked that we should say things, that we should say what we're thinking and not lie about things. Well, I can tell you that, this, that I lost my gun today. I'm not a good cop. I'm looked down at. And I know that. And I'm scared that once you find that out, you might not like me. It's a way to lay it out on the first date. <laughs> I mean, if I if I had the emotional defenses, I think I could listen to that scene in a context of other things that were going on that were really funny and think that it was really funny. Yeah, it is funny. There's there's definitely something funny about both of those characters, but the fact that it seems so real also makes it heartbreaking you know so i to me that's the distillation of the most interesting stuff to watch is stuff that's both so familiar that it makes you laugh but at the same time it's so familiar that you want to cry and you know you describe like like this mix of failure and delusion and innocence and i don't know the things you described that performance with or the kind of work that I do, whatever. I think that's the, I think the reason I'm like, I try to be like that when I'm working is because that's what is the truth about everyone. No one likes to believe that they failed or that they're a failure or that they're acting foolish. You know, we all try to believe the best about ourselves unless you're depressed like I am sometimes. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, like, I think that's why that's why a character like Jim Curring is appealing. You like I think a lot of cops come up to me about that part and I think policemen in general are a lot more vulnerable than you might think they are by looking at them drive down the street. So I don't I think that's the artist's job to show us the parts of ourselves that we're embarrassed to admit are true about ourselves. 
do you find it hard to do that, you know, do that work over and over? That movie in particular was very hard. Um, I mean, it was, I love working with Paul and it was a joy to be able to do something so exciting, exciting and creative every day. But at one point, I, I think it was the day when I was driving to, driving into work to do the scene where he loses his gun. And I was like, I have to cry all day long today. I don't want to do that. This is a weird job. It's a weird thing. Like most people spend their life, like you and I, like whatever in our daily life, we spend our day like trying to avoid crying. You try to avoid sad interactions. And if you, you deal with it if you have to, but you don't choose to drive towards it like I was doing that morning. Uh, so that's an odd thing for an actor. It's like, you know, I don't know. You really t- you do take a hit emotionally because you're the instrument. You know, a violin player... His violin might get scratched, but as an actor, it's you that's getting scratched when you do something difficult. I don't know. I I long ago resigned myself to the fact that I was a vessel for other people's experiences, and and I'm still alive. So <laughs> no worries. After a break, John C. Riley will talk about the summer of insane fun that he had once on a movie set. Hint. The name of the movie rhymes with Noogie Fights. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Blue Apron, who knows that incredible ingredients make incredible meals. Blue Apron worked with a community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, sustainable fisheries, and ethical ranchers to deliver perfectly portioned seasonal ingredients and easy-to-follow recipe cards right to your door. Choose recipes based on your preferences with no weekly commitment. Get your first two Blue Apron meals free, plus free shipping, by visiting blueapron.com slash bullseye. Check out the NPR One app for your phone. Use it to listen to Pop Culture Happy Hour. And it's a great way to find tons of new shows and stories, too. Great hand-curated podcasts and stories are always ready when you are on NPR One. Find it on your app store, NPR O-N-E. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the Oscar-nominated actor John C. Riley. He's had a wide range of roles from the cuckolded husband in the musical Chicago to a middle-aged man-child in Step Brothers with Will Ferrell. His latest film is The Lobster. It's in theaters now. I'm going to play a clip from Boogie Nights from 1997. This is the first time I think that I ever saw you on uh, on screen. Um, so you're in this scene with Mark Wahlberg, another guy who is who's known for the contrast between his toughness and open-heartedness. And the two of you are porn stars. You're doing great. It's the 70s. And then things move towards the 80s and they start to fall apart. You try and become rock and roll stars. You record some songs together. And this is the two of you trying to convince the studio owner to give you your demos without you having paid for them. Come on, come on, come on, come on, all right? All we need is the tapes first. No, you don't get them until you pay. In our situation, that doesn't make any sense. Wait, we can't pay the price of the demo tapes unless we take the demo tapes to the record company and get paid. Hello, exactly. That's not an MP, that's a YP. Your problem. Come up with the money and I'll give you the tapes. That's it. Okay, all right, now you're talking above my head, all right? I don't know this industry jargon, YP, MP, whatever, okay? All I know is that I cannot 
get a record contract. We cannot get a record contract unless I take these tapes. And granted, the, the tapes themselves are your, are your, bit, are, are your, that you own them, okay? But the magic that is on the tapes, that heart and soul that we put into those tapes, that is ours. And you don't own that. I think I saw this movie with my mom. <laughs> yeah, my my late grandmother saw this movie. That was intense. She's like, didn't care for the language. That's all she said. <laughs> you know that cool guy who plays the, the, the guy the themes. There's a little trivia note. The guy who plays the owner of the studio is Robert Downey Jr.'s father, Robert Downey Sr., uh, who directed Putney Swope and all kinds of cool stuff. One of the things about that movie is that it takes to your two characters. Oh, you said like the 80s the 80s happened and then things start to go bad. It's like cocaine happened is what happened to these right. guys. And it and and basically it takes the audience through this journey of there's always darkness in the world, but the fun stuff is so fun and so well presented that it makes you complicit in it, yeah. then makes you deal with the consequences. Yeah. You want to play with fire? Here's what happens. But I feel like that's something that it – because your character is so central to that story, it's something that you probably had to deal with as an actor. I mean, granted, you're not shooting in sequence. Interesting pivot. But you have to put – no, but I mean you have to – Yeah, that's true. But I live a very sheltered life and I deliberately stay out of – Pornographic films. <laughs> well, no, we went and visited a couple of porno sets for this movie. I never – participated in a porn but uh yeah like for the most part we were making that movie uh sort of like under the radar you know um no one knew who paul was his first film heart eight or sydney as it's actually called had a very small release um it's a brilliant movie but he he didn't have the kind of pressure that comes with you know big success or notoriety you know so we made that movie over the course of a summer, that was so fun. It was like this insanely fun summer. Like a lot of it, like that, the house was out in West Covina, so we were even like way out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there's so many stories from that movie I could tell you, but the one thing that I remember is feeling like, wait until the world sees this. Like the studio didn't even know what they had allowed to happen, I don't think. Uh, we made it so fast with all these unknown people, and um, the material was, you know, I don't think there's been another full penis shot <laughs> in a movie for that long uh, and of that length <laughs> since then. But It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the Oscar-nominated actor John C. Riley. He plays Dr. Steve Brule in the bizarre and wonderful TV show. Check it out with Dr. Steve Brule. I want to play one more clip from Check It Out with Dr. Steve Brule. And my guest is Dr. Steve Brule himself, John C. Riley. And you are... Uh, Steve is. Steve is. Excuse me. Forgive me. He's got a new format on the program in the first episode. And uh, that means a co-host has come on the show. Don't give it away. Oh, it's already aired. Okay. Yes. I was going to say, don't give away the secret. Something and, something happens. And the subject of the show is planes. Channel 5 made me get a new co-host. They said they had to spice up the show, give it more jazz. I thought it was good luck it was. 
So we just walked around this big old dusty barn talking about planes. I'm kind of partial to single-engine airplanes. Uh, Me too. Especially if you're flying at night. If uh, let's get this old girl started up. Yeah. Oh no. No, no. Don't do that. Don't do that. That will hurt the engine. Uh, this dirty ago. old man is the pilot of the plane. Linda just kept hogging the whole interview. So this is the plane we're going to be taking up. This is a Cessna 182 made Finally. by Cessna aircraft. Well, are we about ready to hit the skies? Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, we have a weight limitation on this airplane, so we can only take one passenger. Uh, ladies first, so we'll take her up today. Oh, well, it doesn't have to be ladies first. Sometimes up. it's man first. Don't be an air hog, Linda. It's nice to have eyes on the ground. We'll set you up with a walkie-talkie and a binocular so you yeah. can watch us take. It's your okay. choice. Push forward. She doesn't have a Brommer jacket. This is exciting. It is. <laughs> Dang it! I have been looking forward to this. Thing. I have to tell you. Fine, I'll be eyes on the ground. Give me the walkie-talkie. That's him kicking the plane. the plane before it took off. The... Yeah, he's struggling for survival in that scene, trying to, you know, this show has been station even though they seem to be ignoring him most of the time the station insisted that he get a co-host to kind of spice up the show it's so raw to see even though uh dr steve Brühl is such a character he's so present with you in any given second it's it's scary to see him go through pain in a yeah. way that well i think that's why the show has such appeal to people is that it's not just we're making fun of this co of this host you're not we're not making fun of this guy he just he's trying the best he can and the joke ultimately is always on him on the show and the people that we get I don't know if you know this or if the viewers or listeners know this but uh the people who are guests on the show are all real people that are not pre-interviewed that don't meet Steve before the camera's rolling, and they all have real jobs. Like everyone from like that pilot was a real pilot who flew that plane. You know, we've had brain surgeons on and child psychologists and umpires and, I mean, so many different jobs. Astronomers, like we had this, I did this inter, you know, Steve did this interview with an astronomer up on Mount Wilson Observatory. He's like one of the preeminent astronomers in the country. And yet he agreed to be interviewed by Steve Brule. So there's this really chaotic improvisational quality to the show because those people are improvising too. They're not putting on an act. They're just trying to field these insane questions. And one of my favorite things about the show is that, you know, we'll introduce a theme and then we might not get to anything to do with that theme by the end of the episodes. <laughs> John C. Riley, I really appreciate you coming on Bullseye to talk to us. <laughs> my pleasure. And please give my regards to Dr. Steve Brule. I will. I have his pager number, so I'll try <laughs> to get a hold of him. <laughs> John C. Riley. His latest movie is The Lobster, which is in theaters now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So it can be a little bit hard to describe Shamir if you don't know anything about Shamir. He says he prefers the pronoun he, but he really doesn't have a strong gender identification. His singing voice is a countertenor, high-pitched but strong and rich and full, not like a, a Curtis Mayfieldish falsetto. It's the sort of gender-defying voice that you might hear from Nina Simone or a young Mavis Staples, but in reverse. 
He grew up in exurban Las Vegas, down the street from a hog farm, which he says stunk up the whole town. He's black, and it's tempting to connect his music to R&B and soul traditions, but he came to dance music through punk rock. In fact, maybe it's better to let Shamir's music do the talking. Here's On the Regular from his debut album, Ratchet. Well, everyone is minus, you could call me Multiply. Just so you know, yes, yes, I'm that guy. You could give my fingers and I'm not waving high. Guess I'm never ending. You could call me pie. But really, how long till the world realize? Yes, yes, I'm the best. Love what you heard. Anything less is... Obviously absurd. Shamir's Twitter bio says, 21, musician, comedian, singer, rapper, twerker, chef, writer, filmmaker, skinny fat ass. Love me? I spoke to him last year. Shamir, welcome to Bullseye. Really great to have you on the show. No, thank you for having me. So I uh, try to avoid this kind of um, cliched question, which is, uh, why did you name a thing the name that you named it? Um, But I I am sincerely curious as to how you ended up naming your first record Ratchet. Well, I like to, you know, represent where I come from as much as possible. Um, that's why I named my first um, EP Northtown, which is um, the name of the suburb in Vegas where I'm from. And so Ratchet was just kind of like the natural next thing for me to um, name my album because it's kind of like what me and my friends always called each other and kind of like describe each other as. I have to say, like, when I think of... Ratchet. Well, first of all, I'm old. So when I think of Ratchet, I first I probably think of a socket wrench. Then maybe I think of a gun, <laughs> which is what it used to mean. And it, it's sort of a synonym for what when I was a teenager used to be. It's sort of an epithet that means like uh, ghetto or, or classless. You're not the picture that comes into my mind if I hear someone <laughs> say that word. <laughs> we have our moments. We've kind of used it to as like a, a softer ghetto. <laughs> Um, where, like, we definitely, like, have our ghetto moments and do very um, ratchet things, but um, we still try to keep it as classy as possible. Las Vegas is, you know, one of the great entertainment cities in the United States. It's probably one of the cities where the most people work in the entertainment industry, but it's a very weird version of the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you knew people who were professional musicians or entertainers in your life, like whether that seemed like a real thing? In Vegas, a professional entertainer is that word to a T. You're an entertainer, and that's it. You're not an artist. And that's kind of like what Vegas lacks is artists. And there's not too many artists coming out of Vegas. Um, Yeah, it's easy to kind of like, you know, get a cabaret gig or like a playing an instrument with the with a band on the strip or downtown or whatever like those gigs are easy but when you're an artist like me trying to make original content that's where it's hard and because there's not too many outlets for that I know you were in a sort of punkish duo before you started making the music that you're making now which is much dancier as we heard Mm-hmm. Um, did you think of yourself as punk? Uh, I still do. I'm still like a little grungy punk rocket at heart. Um, I mean, even still to this day, I don't even really listen to a lot of electronic um, or pop music. Pop and electronic music for me was kind of like an experiment. And 
it was something to help me get out of my comfort zone and also kind of like help expand my sound. And this just happened to kind of be the sound that kind of everybody like got a chance to catch on to. But, you know, throughout the years, I've done country and, and punk and, and R&B and rap and all of that. So I just like to like challenge myself as a musician and look at genre as a tool as opposed to like a box to be put in um, and try to stay like in those confines. Like I just I like to try out everything and challenge myself as a musician. I want to play a little bit of one of the songs from your new album. This song is called Make a Scene, and my guest is Shamir. I think a lot of people who make uh, dance music, especially electronic dance music, have a really specific test for whether something is good, whether they're going to put it out or not. And that is, you know, they print up a white label, they take it to a club, or I guess at this point they make an MP3 and send it to a club. Um, and they go and see whether it fills the dance floor. And I wonder, you, you the way that you've described yourself in the past in interviews, like, I kind of wonder just, like, even if you're the kind of guy that likes to, like, hang out in a club <laughs> and see if the dance floor fills. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I'm not. Um, I Just like I said, I kind of use dance music as a tool to kind of lighten my lyrics um like what I am at most is a a singer-songwriter like that's what I am to the core um you know most of my songs on the album if you were to you know strip away all the backing tracks and give me a guitar I'll be able to play them because that's how a lot of songs you know start off um I kind of decided to make my music more danceable and lighthearted to kind of like take away from the heaviness of the lyrics um because i mean you know why not like why does your music also have to be heavy if your lyrics are you know i'll continue my conversation with shamir after a break we'll talk about middle school gender identity stand-up comedy and fighting it's bullseye for maximumfun.org and npr if you like what we do on Bullseye, you should take a listen to Latino USA. Host Maria Hinojosa brings you interviews and stories with a fresh perspective. You'll hear from Latino rock and roll icons, understand the consequences of marijuana legalization on communities of color, and profiles of Latinas that run the world. Find Latino USA now on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. Carrie, close your eyes. Okay. In the future, when I utter the word canceled, everything which I have said to you while you are in a therapy session will have no force with you. Let's go to the earliest moment of pain or discomfort. Uh, no, I, Ross, I don't think I want to do Scientology auditing. I understand. The only way is through. I don't really like Scientology, Ross. That's too bad, because we have a show called Oh No, Ross and Carrie. If people are going to learn all about Scientology, I'm afraid you're going to have to go through the auditing process. Is it going to be just like this? Yep, for like five hours at a time. Why did we start making a show? 
We're masochists. Oh, okay. Canceled. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Shamir. His recent album is called Ratchet. It blends his distinctive countertenor with infectious, joyful beats. You mentioned that you used to make country music. Um, and I know that you were pretty serious about it, like you competed in talent competitions and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Did you make country music about country music themes, traditional country music themes, or even contemporary country music themes? And like, did that make sense to you and like feel at home to you as a as a form? Sometimes, like listening to like traditional country music um, themes, I kind of like relate and feel it because you know north las vegas is is still pretty small and everyone kind of knows everyone and you know is centered around a farm and super like dusty and you literally get chased by tumbleweeds so (laughs) it's definitely that like back home feeling but my songs were um no different than what they are now they were just kind of about life in a very um honest way i mean even now, on the album, a lot of the songs start off as country music. Um, Call It Off is heavily influenced by a Jewel song. And um, and Demon on the album started off like as an acoustic song that I wrote and played on guitar and just like sent it to my producer. And he turned it into, you know, the pop song that we know today. <laughs> well, let's take a listen to a little bit of Demon uh, from my guest, Shamir. feeling when you are when you're making anorexia is the punk duo that you were in previously um what's the difference in feeling when you are doing that in front of people and when you are singing dancey pop records that you know are making everyone dance in front of people when i was in anorexia and when i would perform at anorexia we didn't care about if you were in tune. We didn't care about, like, how loud certain things was or whatever. We just kind of, like, it was just, like, very raw. And it was just, like, more more just kind of, like, getting out angst and, and feelings across. Whereas when I play and perform now, I almost feel like I'm, like, channeling. I almost don't feel like myself on stage. It's almost like I'm gone for, like, an hour or however long I'm on stage and then... Once I'm done, I come off and I feel like Shamir again in a weird way. I've heard you describe yourself as like a pretty introverted person in real life. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Even um, a few weeks ago when I played the Music Hall Williamsburg in New York, and I, I didn't really sleep the night before. I had played three different sessions, and was up at like 6 a.m. doing a meeting or something and um 
I didn't get any rest, so I completely lost my voice. And <laughs> I was, like, super scared. I was like, this is a sold-out show, and, like, it's going to be horrible. And um, I was, like, on vocal rest and everything. And before I hit stage, I was, like, doing vocal warm-ups with, like, my backup singer and everything. And it just wasn't looking too good. So I was, like, kind of, like, down. But it was just something about just, like, stepping on stage. Like, as soon as I stepped on stage, like, my voice was, like, completely back to normal. And it was just, like, it's just, like, I wasn't even singing. It's just, like, something else took over. And I kind of, like, feel like that usually almost every time on stage. So it's not, it almost is, like, it's not even really me. Like, I don't know what happens. Like, I I can never sing as good as I can on stage, like, off stage. I don't know what happens. <laughs> I want to play a song from your new album that's called Darker. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about it before I play it. The sample at the beginning of the song is um, from an old band from Austin called Scratch Acid. And I was just, like, listening to a lot of them and their song specifically, Owner's Lament. So I went home and did a little quick little loop of that song um, and just, like, looped it. And that's how I wrote the song, just singing it over that um, loop. And the song I originally wrote about when my great-grandma died and how her death was not really seen as, like, a sad thing for me or a lot of my family because she's in her 90s, she lived a grateful life, and it was just, like, kind of, like, a beautiful thing as opposed to just, like, a sad thing. And the song is just kind of, like, looking at death in a more positive light and kind of, like, thinking about and realizing that we don't die unless we're supposed to. Like, everything kind of, like, happens for a reason, and we only die when we're done, you know, walking our paths. Well, let's hear a little bit of Shamir's Darker. frame and it doesn't get darker unless you expect it to. And how did that come to you? Um I you know, it's a lot like a lot of people, I guess that don't believe like in the afterlife or whatever, just kinda like think that you die 
and that's it. And you're buried under a bunch of dark dirt, and that's it. Like, the light is on, and then the light is out. And um, and I definitely, at least my ideals, believe that um, the light isn't out depending on how you lived your life and what you did the light just kind of gets brighter um my mom is very very spiritual and um very hippie and um she does what she calls earth magic and (laughs) different things like that so definitely some of her ideals rub off of me sometimes does your mom ever do magic for you yeah but i don't like it i don't like the magic part i don't do that (laughs) (laughs) have you told her yeah, so she still, like, sprays me with, like, weird things and throw herbs on me or whatever. I mean, sometimes it works, but I don't... I, I'm like, no, Mom. I mean, it's kind of sweet, isn't it? What a, what a nice mom thing to to do magic for you. I mean, I'm sure if my mom... <laughs> if my mom knew how to do slash believed in magic, it would be... She, she'd be all over doing some magic for me. <laughs> I mean, I'd rather, I'd rather just, just live out life... Um, I definitely believe in like universal manifestation, but that's that's not like magic to me. It's just kind of like putting things out into the universe and kind of like you know really focusing on it and things kind of like manifest. And I think definitely that's how things worked for me. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Shamir. His recent album is called Ratchet. I watched a clip of you on the internet. Uh, that was a submission for a stand-up comedy contest. Yeah. It was really charming. And um, your opening chunk was this story about being in, I want to say, middle school and sort of asking a very innocent question about an art project and having the teacher take you aside afterwards to ask if you were having gender identity problems. True story. Is that, yeah, I was going to say, it sounds, it was real specific to not be a true story. I mean, obviously, when you're in middle school and everyone is kind of transforming into their respectable, I guess, assigned genders, and you're not, <laughs> uh, you kind of feel a little, um, I mean, it was hard. It was a little left out, obviously. And I'm like, I'm not getting facial hair. And my voice is just not getting deeper. And, you know, I my features are softening. Like, what is going on? You know, so um, I definitely, when I had asked that question, I was just kind of like being a class clown, too. I was just like well, can I use, like, squares? Because I feel like they're more, like, manlier and everyone kind of, like, laughs. So, like, she, like, you know, made me stay (laughs) stay after class. And she's like, are you having, like, gender, like, ID issues or whatever? Because I guess she felt that I was, like, maybe trans or something. I guess she kind of, like, thought that I was kind of, like, trying to make myself look more feminine. And I guess she didn't kind of, like, realize that I was just kind of going opposite of everyone else naturally in a weird way. Um, but yeah, like she's like going to like sue me to the counselor and everything or whatever. I'm like, I'm fine. Like, <laughs> it's not that big of a deal. I was just kind of like joking. <laughs> you left the punchline out of the story that you told in the in your stand up act, which was you replying to her uh, 
well, I could drop my pants and you can identify my gender. Yeah, JK. <laughs> JK. <laughs> and the coda to that was, I ended up getting kicked out of that school, but it's okay. I didn't need to be in, uh, that wasn't the right school for me anyway. Was that part true? Um, No, but I have been, you know, it was, it was middle school, so I... um. I've been suspended a few times. I was actually almost going to go to um, what they call opportunity school, which is kind of like a reform school. Right. Why did you get so? What did you get suspended for? Oh, I will fight all the time, like all the time, because people, you know, people will like try to try me. Like I don't know. I guess you know, I didn't like during puberty. I didn't really like, um, you know, get facial hair and like my voice didn't deepen or whatever. So obviously, you know, the boys with their raging hormones were like try to fight me or whatever but I obviously didn't go down without a fight and a lot of people didn't kind of like realize that I took taekwondo a few years before <laughs> <laughs> so were you doing actual taekwondo moves on dudes uh yeah I mean I've no, I've only lost one fight and he was like three times my size <laughs> <laughs> um do you ever worry that something that came so quickly could go quickly. I don't want to like sound like ungrateful or anything, but I really don't care. <laughs> um, I've already like exceeded so much than I had planned for. When I first sent my demo out to to God Mode, which is like a tape label, my only goal was to get like maybe fifty to a hundred tapes done. I was super content with being a a working musician, like a, a working, like a musician that still like works and just kind of like do music for fun. Like that was the goal. That was the plan. So um, I kind of feel like I'm in a mind where like I have, I really have nothing to lose. I'm like super young. I have my whole life ahead of me and I can still always go back to school. I can still always get a job. Like it's like, it's not like my good years are over. <laughs> I'm only 20 <laughs> Well, Shimir, I really loved your record, and it was really great to get to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. It was it was really fun. No, thank you for having me. <laughs> Shamir's album is called Ratchet. It's his second record. He also has an EP called Northtown. He's currently touring in the U.S. and Canada. Every week we like to close the show with a few words from me, your host. It's the outshot. You know, they say older folks are happier than we might think. The sociologists tell us that experience helps them focus on what's important to them. Terrence Stamp is certainly focused in the movie The Limey. He looks like he's about 60, that's a guess. Old enough to know that he only wants one thing, to find the man who killed his daughter. Find him and then kill him. You tell him! You tell him I'm coming! Most of these revenge movies sort of relentless pushes forward. Even the old man ones with Liam Neeson or Harrison Ford, even those are pulse pounders, obsessed with driving you from this moment to the next. The Limey's the opposite. It looks backwards. It lives in the streaky, off-colored past. Steven Soderbergh directed it, and he breaks the narrative into moments, drops... Little flashes of stamp in the 60s in. Here he's strumming a guitar. He's playing with his daughter. Flirting with her mother, who's dead now. We see these bits and pieces. 
these moments of the person he used to be. He mostly just threw away. I watched her grow up in increments. She told me you were a ghost in her life. I probably don't have to tell you this, but the problem with revenge is that it doesn't change the past. The past is what it is. It lives with us no matter what we do. It's hard to see whether Stamp's character knows this while he's tossing a man over the edge of an infinity pool. Maybe he thinks this chase is what's important now. Maybe he thinks he should just do what he can. The man he's after is an old record producer with a blinding smile, played by Peter Fonda, a guy old enough to sleep with a woman whose first name he suggested to her parents when she was born. A man whose whole life is in the past. Have you ever dreamed about a place you never really recalled being to before? A place that maybe only exists in your imagination? Someplace far away, half-remembered when you wake up. When you were there, though, you knew the language. You knew your way around. That was the 60s. There's this moment where Terrence Stamp is explaining his life to his daughter's old acting teacher. He used to be a bank robber who was locked up most of his daughter's life. And as he's telling this story, there's this turn of phrase. He says, As time went on, well, when in ever-decreasing circles. It's a beautiful little moment, sad, or maybe elegiac is the word. Anyway, there's a shootout in the end in a darkened house in Big Sur. People die. People beg for their lives as the surf laps at the beach. And everyone has a moment to think about the mistakes they've made, the choices they can't get back. Stamp is a fighter, and he's going to go down swinging. But the truth is, he's fighting ghosts. That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Dan Gallucci, production fellow at Maximum Fun, is a body in Explorello. Christian Duenas is our production assistant, senior producer, Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows and extended versions of interviews, they are all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted by the wonderful comedian Guy Branham. This week's Pop Rocket comes from our annual Comedy and Creativity Retreat in Southern California, Max FunCon. Tickets for Max FunCon East, that's in September in the Poconos, are available now at maxfuncon.com. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
in Body Next. Let me tracks. I gotta I gotta record something for uh, uh, JJ Go to here. So let me record that. Jordan Jesse Go is supported in part by Warby Parker, a new concept in eyewear. You can get prescription glasses starting at $95, including the lenses. My wife has used Warby Parker. She loves them. Personally, I've got eyes like a hawk, but I think I might get some sunglasses. With the Home Try-On program, you can order five pairs of glasses shipped directly to you. You try them all on, get a feel for them, get feedback from other people. You get to keep five pairs, five days, then mail back to Warby Parker in a then mail back the ones you don't want to Warby Parker in a prepaid package. Go to warbyparker.com slash jjgo. That's warbyparker.com slash jjgo for the free home try-on now. Warby Parker makes your experience completely risk-free. Free shipping all around at warbyparker.com slash jjgo. We're also supported in part by Squarespace. If you've got a passion that you obsess over, if it keeps you up all night, if you live for it, you should show it off. With easy-to-use tools and templates, Squarespace helps you showcase every detail of what drives you. Because if it's worth the effort, it's worth showing to the world. You can start your free trial today. Visit squarespace.com slash JJGo. You should. Squarespace. Jordan Jesse Go is supported in part by Squarespace. Cool. Can you send those two to Brian? <laughs>